Book Two of the History of Britain by John Milton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Finding therefore such opposition, the Scots and Irish robbers, for so they are indifferently termed, without delay get them home. The Picts, as before was mentioned, then first began to settle in the utmost parts of the island, using now and then to make inroads upon the Britons. But they, in the meanwhile, thus rid of their enemies, begin afresh to till the ground, which, after cessation, yields her fruit in such abundance as had not formerly been known for many ages. But wantonness and luxury, the wanted companions of plenty, grow up as fast, and with them, if Gildas deserve belief, all other vices incident to human corruption. That which he notes especially to be the chief of perverting of all good in the land, and so continued in his days, was the hatred of truth, and all such as durst appear to vindicate and maintain it. Against them, as against the only disturbers, all the malice of the land was bent. Lies and falsities, and such as could best invent them, were only in request. Evil was embraced for good, wickedness honoured and esteemed as virtue, and this quality their valour had against a foreign enemy to be ever backward and heartless, to civil broils eager and prompt, in matters of government and the search of truth weak and shallow, in falsehood and wicked deeds pregnant and industrious, pleasing to God or not pleasing with them weighed alike, and the worst, most an end, was the weightier. All things were done contrary to public welfare and safety, nor only by secular men, for the clergy also, whose example should have guided others, were as vicious and corrupt. Many of them, besotted with continual drunkenness or swollen with pride and wilfulness, full of contention, full of envy, indiscreet, incompetent judges to determine what in the practice of life is good or evil, what lawful or unlawful. Thus furnished with judgment, and for manners thus qualified, both priests and laymen they agreed to choose them several kings of their own, as near as might be like as themselves, and the words of my author import as much. Kings were anointed, saith he, not of God's anointing, but such as were cruelest, and soon after, as inconsiderately, without examining the truth, put to death by their anointers, to set up others more fierce and proud. As for the election of their kings, and that they had not all one monarch appears both in ages past and by the sequel. It began, as nigh as may be guessed, either this year, note, post-Christ 447, return to text, or the following, when they saw the Romans had quite deserted their claim, about which time also Pelagianism again prevailing by means of some few, the British clergy, too weak it seems at dispute, entreat the second time Germanus, to their assistance, who, coming with Severus, a disciple of Lupus, that was his former associate, stands not now to argue, for the people generally continue right, but inquiring those authors of new disturbance, adjudges them to banishment. They, therefore, by consent of all, were delivered to Germanus, who, carrying them over with him, note, post-Christ 448, return to text, disposed of them in such place where neither they could infect others, and were themselves under cure of better instruction. But Germanus the same year died in Italy, 
and the Britons not long after found themselves again in much perplexity, with no slight rumour that their old troublers, the Scots and Picts, had prepared a strong invasion, purposing to kill all, and dwell themselves in the land from end to end. But ere their coming in, as if the instruments of divine justice had been at strife, which of them first should destroy a wicked nation, the pestilence, forestalling the sword, left scarce enough of them alive to bury the dead. And for that time, as one extremity keeps off another, preserved the land from a worse encumbrance of those barbarous dispossessors whom the contagion gave not leave now to enter far. And yet the Britons, nothing bettered by these heavy judgments, the one threatened, the other felt, instead of acknowledging the hand of heaven, run to the palace of their king Vortigern with complaints and cries of what they suddenly feared from the Pictish invasion. Vortigern, who at that time was chief rather than sole king, unless the rest had perhaps left their dominions to the common enemy, is said by him of Monmouth to have procured the death first of Constantine, then of Constance his son, who of a monk was made king, and by that means to have usurped the crown. But they who can remember how Constantine, with his son Constance the monk, the one made emperor, the other Caesar, perished in France, may discern the simple fraud of this fable. But Vortigern, however he may have come to reign, is deciphered by truer stories as a proud, unfortunate tyrant, and yet is said to have been much beloved of the people, because his vices sorted so well with theirs. For neither was he skilled in war, nor wise in counsel, but covetous, lustful, luxurious, and prone to all vice, wasting the public treasure in gluttony and riot, careless of the common danger, and, through a haughty ignorance, unapprehensive of his own. Nevertheless, importuned and awakened at length by unusual clamours of the people, he summons a general council to provide some better means than heretofore had been used against these continual annoyances from the north, wherein, by advice of all, it was determined that the Saxons should be invited into Britain against the Scots and Picts, whose breaking in they either shortly expected or already found they had not strength enough to oppose. The Saxons were a barbarous and heathen nation, famous for nothing else but robberies and cruelties done to all their neighbours, both by sea and land, in particular to this island. Witness that military force which the Roman emperors maintained here purposely against them under a special commander whose title, as is found on good record, was Count of the Saxon Shore in Britain, and the many mischiefs done by their landing here, both alone and with the Picts, as above hath been related, witness as much. They were a people thought by good writers to be descended of the Sakai, a kind of Scythians in the north of Asia, and to have been thence called Sakasans, or sons of the Sakai who, with a flood of other northern nations, came into Europe toward the declining of the Roman Empire, and using piracy from Denmark all along these seas, possessed at length by intrusion all that coast of Germany and the Netherlands which took thence the name of Old Saxony, lying between the Rhine and Elbe, and from thence north as far as Edora, the river-bounding Holsatia. Though not so firmly or so largely, but that their multitude wandered yet uncertain of an habitation, such guests as these, the Britons resolve now to send for, 
and entreat into their houses and possessions, at whose very name heretofore they trembled afar off. So much do men through impatience count ever that the heaviest which they bear at present, and to remove the evil which they suffer, care not though they act in such a manner as to pull on a greater, as if variety and change in evil also were acceptable. Or whether it be that men in the despair of better imagine fondly a kind of refuge in a change from one misery to another. The Britons, therefore, with war to Jern, who was then accounted king over them all, resolve in full council to send ambassadors of their choicest men with great gifts, and, saith the Saxon writer in these words, desiring their aid. Quote, Worthy Saxons, hearing the fame of your prowess, the distressed Britons, wearied out and overpressed by a continual invading enemy, have sent us to beseech your aid. They have a land fertile and spacious, which to your commands they bid us surrender. Heretofore we have lived with freedom under the obedience and protection of the Roman Empire. Next to them we know none worthier than yourselves, and therefore become suppliants to your valour. Leave us not below our present enemies, and to aught by you imposed willingly we shall submit. Unquote. Yet Ethelward writes not that they promised subjection, but only amity and league. They, therefore, who had chief rule among them, hearing themselves entreated by the Britons, to that which gladly they would have wished to obtain of them by entreating, to the British embassy returned this answer, quote, Be assured henceforth of the Saxons as of faithful friends to the Britons, no less ready to stand by them in their need than in their best of fortune, unquote. The ambassadors returned joyful, and with news as welcome to their country, whose sinister fate had now blinded them for destruction. The Saxons, consulting first their gods, for they had answer that the land whereto they went, they should hold three hundred years, half that time conquering and half quietly possessing, furnish out three long galleys or keels with a chosen company of warlike youth under the conduct of two brothers, Hengist and Horsa, descended in the fourth degree from Woden, from whom, deified for the fame of his acts, most kings of those nations derive their pedigree. These, and either mixed with these, or soon after by themselves, two other tribes or neighboring people called Jutes and Angles, the one from Jutland, the other from Anglen, by the city of Sleswick, both provinces of Denmark, arrive in the first year of Martin the Greek Emperor, from the birth of Christ four hundred and fifty years, received with much goodwill of the people first, then of the king, who, after some assurances given and taken, bestows on them the island of Tenet, where they first landed, hoping they might be made hereby more eager against the Picts, when they fought as for their own country, and more loyal to the Britons, from whom they had received a place to dwell in which before they wanted. The British Nennius writes that these brethren were driven into exile out of Germany, and to Vortigern, who reigned in much fear, one while of the Picts, then of the Romans and Ambrosius, came opportunely into the haven. For it was the custom in old Saxony, when their numerous offspring overflowed the narrowness of their bounds, 
to send them out by lot into new dwellings wherever they found room either vacant or to be forced but whether sought or unsought they dwelt not here long without employment for the scots and picts were now come down some say as far as stamford in lincolnshire whom perhaps not imagining to meet new opposition the saxons though not till after a sharp encounter put to flight and that more than once slaying in fight as some scotch writers affirm their king eugenius the son of fergus hengist perceiving the island to be rich and fruitful but her princes and other inhabitants to be given to vicious ease sends word home inviting others to a share of his good success who returning with seventeen ships were grown up now to a sufficient army and entertained without suspicion on these terms that they quote, should bear the brunt of war against the picts receiving a stipend and some place to inhabit unquote. with these was brought over the daughter of hengist a virgin wondrous fair as is reported rowan the british called her she by commandment of her father who had invited the king to a banquet coming in presence with a bowl of wine to welcome him and to attend on his cup till the feast ended won so much upon his fancy though already wived as to induce him to demand her in marriage upon any conditions hengist at first though it fell out perhaps according to his drift held off excusing his meanness then obscurely intimating a desire and almost a necessity by reason of his augmented numbers to have his narrow bounds of tanet enlarged to the circuit of kent had it straight by donation though gorongonus till then was king of that place and so as it were overcome by the great munificence of vortigern gave him his daughter and still encroaching on the king's favour got further leave to call over octa and ebisa his own and his brother's son pretending that they if the north were given them would sit there as a continual defence against the scots while himself guarded the east they therefore sailing with forty ships even to the orcades and every way curbing the scots and picts possessed that part of the isle which is now northumberland notwithstanding this they complained that their monthly pay was grown much into arrear which when the britons found means to satisfy though alleging withal that they to whom promise was made of wages were nothing so many in number quieted with this a while but still seeking occasion to fall off they find fault next that their pay is too small for the danger they undergo threatening open war unless it be augmented Gortimer, the king's son perceiving his father and the kingdom thus betrayed from that time bends his utmost endeavour to drive them out they on the other side making league with the picts and scots and issuing out of kent wasted without resistance almost the whole land even to the western sea with such a horrid devastation that towns and colonies overturned priests and people slain temples and palaces but with white fire and sword lay altogether heaped in one mixed ruin of all which multitude so great was the sinfulness that brought this upon them gildas adds that few or none were likely to be other than lewd and wicked persons the residue of these part overtaken in the mountains were slain 
others subdued with hunger preferred slavery before instant death some getting to rocks hills and woods inaccessible preferred the fear and danger of any death before the shame of a secure slavery many fled over sea into other countries some into holland where yet remains the ruins of Brittenberg, an old castle on the sea, to be seen at low water not far from Leiden, either built as writers of their own affirm, or seized on by those Britons in their escape from Hengist. Others into Armorica, peopled as something with Britons long before, either by gift of Constantine the Great, or else of Maximus to those British forces which had served them in foreign wars, to whom those also that miscarried not with the latter Constantine Taro. And lastly, these exiles driven out by Saxons fled for refuge. But the ancient chronicles of those provinces attest their coming thither to be then first when they fled from the Saxons. And indeed the name of Britain in France is not read till after that time. Yet how a sort of fugitives who had quitted without stroke their own country should so soon win another appears not unless joined to some party of their own settled there before vortigern nothing bettered by these calamities grew at last so obdurate as to commit incest with his daughter tempted or tempting him out of an ambition to the crown for which being censured and condemned in a great synod of clerks and laics partly for fear of the saxons according to the counsel of his peers he retired into wales and built him there a strong castle in radnorshire by the advice of ambrosius a young prophet whom others called merlin nevertheless faustus who was the son thus incestuously begotten under the instructions of german or some of his disciples for german was dead before proved a religious man and lived in devotion by the river remnes in glamorganshire but the Saxons, though finding it so easy to subdue the isle, with most of their forces, uncertain for what cause, returned home, whereas the easiness of their conquest might seem rather likely to have called in more, which makes more probable that which the British write of Quartermark. For he, coming to reign instead of his father, deposed for incest, is said to have thrice driven and besieged the Saxons in the Isle of Tanna and when they issued out with powerful supplies sent from Saxony, to have fought with them four other battles, whereof three are named. The first on the river Darwin, the second at Eppisford, wherein Horsa, the brother of Hengist, fell, and on the British part, Catagern, the other son of Vortigern. The third in a field by Stonar, then called Lapis Tituli, in Tanat, where he beat them into their ships that bore them home glad to have so escaped and not venturing to land again for five years after. In the space whereof, Gortimer, dying, commanded that they should bury him in the port of Stonar, persuaded that his bones lying there would be terror enough to keep the Saxons from ever landing in that place. But they, Seth Nennius, neglecting his command, buried him in Lincoln. But concerning these times, the ancientest annals of the Saxons relate in this manner. In the year 455, Hengist and Horsa fought against Vortigern in a place called Egelstrip, now Aesford in Kent, where Horsa lost his life, of whom Horsted, the place of his burial, took its name. After this first battle and the death of his brother, 
Hengist, with his son Asker, took on him kingly title, and peopled Kent with Jutes, who also then, or not long after, possessed the Isle of Wight, and part of Hampshire lying opposite. Two years after, in a fight at Craigensford or Crawford, note, post-Christ, 457, return to text, Hengist and his son slew of the Britons four chief commanders, and as many thousand men, the rest in great disorder flying to London, with the total loss of Kent. And eight years passing between, note, post-Christ, 465, return to text, he made new war on the Britons, of whom, in a battle at Whippetsfleur, twelve princes were slain, and Whippet the Saxon earl, who left his name to that place, though not sufficient to direct us where it now stands. His last encounter was at a place not mentioned. Note, post-Christ 473, return to text, where he gave them such an overthrow that flying in great fear they left the spoil of all to their enemies. And these, perhaps, are the four battles, according to Nennius, fought by Gwartimer, though by these writers far differently related, and happening besides many other bickerings in the space of twenty years, as Malmesbury reckons. Nevertheless, it plainly appears that the Saxons, by whomsoever, were put to hard shifts, being all this while fought withal in Kent, their own allotted dwelling, and sometimes on the very edge of the sea, which the word Whippet's flout seems to intimate. But, Gortimer being now dead, and none of courage left to defend the land, Vortigern, either by the power of his faction or by consent of all, reassumes the government. And Hengist, thus rid of his grand opposer, hearing gladly the restorement of his old favourite, returns again with great forces. But, to Vortigern, whom he well knew how to handle without warring, as to his son-in-law, now that Gortimer, the only author of dissension between them, was removed by death, offers nothing but all terms of new league and amity. The king, both for his wife's sake and his own sottishness, consulting also with his peers, not unlike himself, readily yields, and the place of parley is agreed on, to which either side was to repair without weapons. Hengist, whose meaning was not peace but treachery, appointed his men to be secretly armed, and acquainted them to what intent. The watchword was Nemet Eosaxis, that is, draw your daggers, which they observing when the Britons were thoroughly heated with wine, but the treaty, it seems, was not without cups, and provoked, as was plotted by some affront, dispatched with those poniards every one his next man, to the number of three hundred, the chief of those that could do aught against him, either in council or in the field. Vortigern they only bound and kept in custody, until he granted them, for his ransom, three provinces, which were called afterward Essex, Sussex, and Middlesex. Who thus dismissed, retiring again to his solitary abode in the country of Gwarthiginion, so called from his name, from thence to the castle of his own building in North Wales by the river Tebe, and living there obscurely among his wives, was at length burnt in his tower by fire from heaven, at the prayer, some say, of German, but that coheres not, as others by Ambrosius Aurelian, of whom, as we have heard, at first he stood in great fear, and partly for that cause invited in the Saxons, who, whether by constraint or of their own accord, after much mischief done, 
most of them returning back into their own country, left a fair opportunity to the Britons of avenging themselves easier on those who stayed behind. Repenting, therefore, and with earnest supplication imploring divine help to prevent their final rooting out, they gather from all parts, and under the leading of Ambrosius of Dianus, a virtuous and modest man, the last tier of the Roman stock, advancing now onward against the late victors, defeat them in a memorable battle. Common opinion, but grounded chiefly on the British fables, makes this Ambrosius to be a younger son of that Constantine, whose eldest, as we heard, was Constance the monk, who both lost their lives abroad, usurping the empire. But the express words, both of Gildas and Bede, assure us that the parents of this Ambrosius, having here borne regal dignity, were slain in these Pictish wars and commotions in the island. And if the fear of Ambrose induced Vortigern to call in the Saxons, it seems Vortigern usurped his right. I perceive not that Nennius makes any difference between him and Merlin, for that child without father that prophesied to Vortigern, he names not Merlin but Ambrose, makes him the son of a Roman consul, but concealed by his mother is fearing that the king therefore sought his life. Yet the youth no sooner confessed his parentage, but Vortigern, either in reward of his predictions or as his right, bestowed upon him all the west of Britain himself retiring to a solitary life whosoever son he was he was the first according to surest authors that led against the saxons and overthrew them but whether before this time or after none have written this is certain that in a time when most of the saxon forces were departed home the britons gathered strength and either against those who were left remaining or against their whole of powers the second time returning, obtained this victory. Thus Ambrose, as chief monarch of the isle, succeeded Vortiger, to whose third son, Pascentius, he permitted the rule of two regions in Wales, Dulf and Gorthignum. In his days, saith Nennius, the Saxons prevailed not much, against whom Arthur, as being then chief general of the British kings, made great war but more renowned in songs and romances than in true stories. And the sequel itself declares as much. For in the year 477, Ella the Saxon, with his three sons, Cymon, Pletting, and Kisa, at a place in Sussex called Cymonshore, arrive in three ships, kill many of the Britons, chasing those that remained, into the wood Andred's League. Another battle was fought at Mercred's Burnhamstead. Note, post-Christ 485, return to text, where Ella had by far the victory. But Huntingdon makes it so doubtful that the Saxons were constrained to send home for supplies. Four years after died Hengist, the first Saxon king of Kent, noted to have attained that dignity by craft as much as valour and for giving scope to his own cruel nature, rather than proceeding by mildness or civility. His son Auric, surnamed Oisk, of whom the Kentish kings were called Oiskings, succeeded him, and sate content with his father's winnings, more desirous to settle and defend than to enlarge his bounds. He reigned twenty-four years. 
By this time, note, post-Christ, 492, return to text. Ella and his son Kissa, besieging Andrichester, supposed now to be Newenden in Kent, take it by force, and all within it put to the sword. Thus Ella, three years after the death of Hengist, began his kingdom of the South Saxons, peopling it with new inhabitants from the country which was then called Old Saxony, at this day Holstein in Denmark, and had besides at his command all those provinces which the Saxons had won on this side humble. Animated with these good successes, as if Britain were become now the field of fortune, Curdic, another Saxon prince, the tenth by lineage from Woden, an old and practised soldier who in many prosperous conflicts against the enemy in those parts had nursed up a spirit too big to live at home with equals, coming to a certain place which from thence took the name of Curdic Shore, note, post-Christ 495, return to text, with five ships and Kenrick his son, the very same day overthrew the Britons that opposed him, and so effectually that smaller skirmishes after that day were sufficient to drive them still further off, leaving him a large territory. Note, post-Christ 501, return to text. After him, Horta, another Saxon, with his two sons, Beda and Megla, in two ships arrive at Portsmouth, thence called, and at their landing slew a young British nobleman, with many others who unadvisedly set upon them. The Britons, to recover what they had lost, note, post-Christ 508, return to text, draw together all their forces, led by Natanlaud, or Nazalaud, a certain king in Britain and the greatest of one. But within five thousand of his men Curdic puts to rout and slaves. From whence the place in Hancher, as far as Curdic's ford, now Charred Ford, was called Old Nazalaud. End of the second part of Book Three of The History of Britain by John Milton. Recording by Thomas Copeland.